The following reading is adapted from G.W. Knight's A Simplified Harmony of the Gospels, 2001. This reading is arranged in chronological order of various descriptions taken from the Gospels of the events that followed the crucifixion of Christ, placed together in the form of one continuous narrative. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his robe was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken from fear of him that they became like dead men. When the Sabbath was over, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they observed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been resurrected just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. But go, go quickly, tell his disciples and Peter, he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I've told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they went out and started running from the tomb because trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they ran to tell his disciples the news. They said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But the words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. At that... Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then, following him, Simon Peter came also. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then entered the tomb, saw, and believed. For they still did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went home again. But Mary stood outside, facing the tomb, crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet. 
where Jesus' body had been lying. They said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, though she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've removed him, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. Mary, Jesus said, Turning around, she said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, for I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what he said, had said to her. In the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because of their fear of the Jews. Then Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they still could not believe for joy, they were amazed. He asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. So the disciples rejoiced, when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But one of the twelve, Thomas, called Twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples kept telling him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. After eight days, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. We live in an interesting age, a time when uh, all credulity can be uh, suspended for a movie like Avatar so that thousands of people can be 
thrown into depression because they can't live on that beautiful, mythical world. And yet so many people are skeptical of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that in fact frames the whole of how we understand who and what we are from God's perspective. And that's the only way we can truly know reality is knowing it from God's perspective. Our perspective is just our little view. But when we see it from His point of view, everything is colored by it. There's no place that's better for us to see that in all of its expansiveness than in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Back there 2,000 years ago, there were a bunch of people who struggled with the credulity of saying that this man was really the Son of God and that he really rose from the dead and all that that meant. And the Apostle takes a few moments to say, you know what? You can't just think about this as some sort of a disconnected religious truth. This is life. This is the whole expansive concept of life from the perspective of the God who's given it. I want to take a very brisk walk through a portion of that letter that the Apostle wrote to the church back then. And it's in chapter 15. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. And if you don't, Listen, I'll try and move through it quickly, but it's just so powerful. The first thing that he tells us in the first 11 verses is how the resurrection impacts the gospel. Listen to his words. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which You're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. There are all sorts of belief systems out there. But unless we believe the gospel that was given to us by God about Jesus Christ, we believe in vain. It's empty. It it can't do anything other than give us some warm fuzzies. I don't know about you, but when life is tough, I need more than warm fuzzies. And when it comes to the point of death and what we do with it, we need truth. We need absolute truth. And we need it from the God who gives truth. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So this is vitally important. From God's perspective who breathed out the Holy Scripture, these are the things that are essential for us to know. First, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He didn't die just to be a good example of love. He didn't die because it was out of God's plan. He died specifically because human sin needed a remedy. And this was the only one that could be had. It was God's design to be able to reconcile you and me to to Himself. Secondly, that he was buried. He really did die. He didn't just swoon. It wasn't a a mythical thing. It wasn't just a vision. He died, truly. And that he was raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He really did rise up from the dead. And fourthly, that he then appeared. 
He made himself known. It wasn't some sort of a spiritual resurrection that people have to just imagine in their minds. It's true. He came out of the grave and appeared and walked among us. He tells us that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive, he writes back then. In other words, you can go and check it out for yourself. Though some have fallen asleep, some of those who saw him have already died. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I've persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not empty. It wasn't in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's within me. He said, you know, I had a lot to make up for. I persecuted the church. None of the other disciples did. And I really, I really worked at making sure that people understood that I was truly now a believer in Jesus Christ, truly saved by his grace. And so Paul wraps that section up with saying this. So whether then it was I or they, So we preach, and so you believed. How about you this morning? Do you believe this as the absolute truth that God has given? That Jesus Christ was God in human flesh who came to this earth and died not because it was outside of God's plan, but specifically to fill God's plan that we might have a Redeemer. That fallen mankind who have all wanted to be our own God. We've all wanted to be Lord over our own lives. But the true God who made us says, no, that rebellion needs to be dealt with, and it is. It's forgiven for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel the apostles preached. This is the gospel we have to preach today. And what a glorious gospel it is. Secondly, He talks about how this resurrection impacts our faith. If the resurrection is essential to understanding the gospel, the resurrection is essential then to the faith that we have. He puts it this way in verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how is it that some of you can say there is no resurrection of the dead? I know some of the skeptics would say, well, we've never seen anyone raised from the dead. Right. It is the the standard human condition that you live and then you die. But this one man, Jesus Christ, was raised from the dead, never to die again. And central to our faith is this resurrection. But he says this, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then the truth is not even Christ has been raised. If there's no such thing as resurrection at all, Jesus isn't raised either. And that has some pretty heavy implications. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. There's no sense calling yourself a Christian because this is all mythology. Oh, but it's not a myth. It's the truth. In fact, he says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. No, there's no benefit in being a Christian or confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord if he hasn't been raised from the dead. 
He continues, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, catch these words, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It's critical. This is our faith, is that Jesus Christ has come and died for our sins and been raised from the dead. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who died believing that Jesus saved them from their sins. They're just dead and gone. There's, there's nothing after this. And the other implication is, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christianity doesn't make you a good person for just here and now, and then it's all gone when you die. If this doesn't last out into eternity, it's useless. That's the gospel, that he did die and that he was raised from the dead and that this is true. In 20 through 28, he tells us how the resurrection impacts the future. If it's central to the gospel and it's central to what our faith is, it also then is central to our future. But in fact, he says in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. And the implication of that is that he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's been resurrected first, but there's many other that are going to be resurrected later. For as by a man came death, that's through Adam. When Adam sinned in the garden, death was the natural result. God pronounced it as a judgment. But so also the resurrection of the dead has come through one man, this Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. That's the great question this morning, isn't it? Are you in Christ the same way that you're part of the human race? Have you put your trust in Him and in His death and resurrection? So in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits back there 2,000 years ago, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. This is the future for every true believer in Jesus Christ, that when he returns, we too will be resurrected from the dead to be with him forevermore. Then comes the end, Paul writes, when he delivers up the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. One day, for all those who know him, death itself will cease to be a reality, because all will be swallowed up in his life, because he's conquered it all. Conquered the whole of the human condition in himself. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, and then we're told that, that when the Son Himself has finished all this, then He Himself will be under the Father's feet in the way of understanding that all things are in subjection to God. Christ, as our champion, has won. Has won the victory over sin and all of its effects, not just for now, but for eternity. Then in verses 29 through 34, He tells us what this means for our lives. For Paul, this was, this was a necessity Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead aren't raised at all, then why are people baptized on their behalf? Why would you be baptized as a Christian to be identified with a bunch of dead people who are just dead and they're never going to live again? It's foolishness. Why would I want to be joined together and named by the name of Jesus Christ as a Christian if he's just dead and gone? 
It's foolishness. No, I want to be baptized and identified with Him because I believe that He's been raised from the dead and I will be too when He returns. Another implication of that is Paul says, why am I in danger every hour? Why do I preach this gospel and get persecuted every place I go if this isn't real? It's the essence of madness if this isn't true. Or he says, uh, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. I'm attacked over this belief that I have. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? That was a city where Paul was not only beaten but stoned and and they thought he was dead because he preached this gospel. He said, why go through that? Let's instead be like the, the pagan poets. And he quotes one here, Menander, and says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Maybe that should be our philosophy. Just get all the gusto you can. The first century version of a beer commercial. Get, get it all the first time going around and that's it. And there's nothing else. But he said, no, that's not true. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You start to think like those who don't know God and you'll soon begin to act like those who don't know God. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and don't go on sinning. For some of you don't have this knowledge of God and I say this to your shame. It impacts Our whole lives. In verses 35 through 50, he tells us how it's going to impact our bodies. The resurrection is the core of the gospel. It is central to our faith. It tells us about our future and guarantees it. It tells us how we live life now. And it tells us even about our bodies in that coming resurrection. But someone will ask, he says, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He says, oh, come on, you've all planted something, haven't you? And when you plant watermelons, you don't plant the whole watermelon, you just plant a little seed. You plant that little seed and something entirely different is what comes up. And he says, for the Christian, death is like that. It's like your body's planted in the ground, but you're waiting for this great fruit to come out. What you sow, what you plant, doesn't come to life unless it dies. And And what you sow is not the body that's to be, but a a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But then God gives it a body as he's chosen, and to each kind of seed, its own body. He goes on to explain, nature gives us more indications of this. Not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind of humans and another for animals and another for birds and another for fish. You have a body that fits the environment in which you live. Human beings have bodies that are meant to dwell indoors and not outside like the animals. It's why I'm convinced picnics are sin. Sorry, I just don't like grit and sand and ants. It's a personal thing. But animals are constructed so that they can live outdoors. Birds have a body that's given to them that's unique for being able to fly. And fish have a body that's unique to them for being able to live in the water. And so we're going to need a body that's fit for the environment that we're going to live in after we're resurrected to be in the presence of God. He gives another comparison. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. There's things out there like stars and planets. And then there's things that are here on this earth and the glory is of, of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. They're different for their suited purposes. And then there's the glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. And they differ in their brightness and, and what comp- comprises them. 
So it is, he says, with the resurrection of the dead. This is powerful. Listen to this. What is sown, what's planted, perishable. Our bodies that go into the grave are perishable bodies. But what is raised is imperishable. In the resurrection, the body that you have now will be completely transformed into an imperishable body if you're in Christ. If you know Him and love Him and trust Him as your sin bearer. It's sown in dishonor. The reason why we even die is because sin came into the world. It's dishonorable, but it's raised in glory. All the the remnants of sin removed. It's sown. It's planted in weakness. These bodies were made to be able to die, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And he says, now this, is, this explains certain Old Testament passages of Scripture. Thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam, Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. It's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. And the first man, Adam, he was from the earth, a man of dust. But the second man, Jesus Christ, he is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. We're human in Adam's likeness and will die like Adam if Christ doesn't return first. And, but as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. If you're in Christ, you'll bear his image. Just as we've been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The gospel is centered in the resurrection. Our faith is centered in the resurrection. Our future is found in the resurrection. Our life is informed by the resurrection. Our bodies are impacted by the resurrection. And then the resurrection has to do with Christ's return, 51 through 57. Behold, I tell you a mystery. This is a mystery, beloved. We shall not all sleep. Not all of us are going to die Christ might return even in our generation. We don't know. We're waiting for it at any moment. But I tell you, we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the last thing God has to say. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Those who remain alive at Christ's return will be transformed just like those who are resurrected from the dead. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on the immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Sin and all of its consequences eradicated for those who are in Christ. You see, the sting of death is sin. What, what makes death so bitter is that it came about because of our disobedience to God. We, we didn't want Him to be God. But the, and the power of sin is the law. We, we violated God's law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he concludes, not only is the resurrection centered around the return of Christ, because that's when we'll be raised, But the resurrection impacts our hope in everything we do here and now. His last verse. Therefore, 
It's a great word to summarize everything that's come in front of it. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not vain. Nobody lives for Him foolishly. It will have its perfect payoff in the resurrection of that day. James Orr, in answering the question, what is a Christian, said, He who with his whole heart believes in Jesus as the Son of God is thereby committed to much else besides. He's committed to a view of God, to a view of man, to a view of sin, to a view of redemption, to a view of the purpose of God in creation and history, and to a view of human destiny found only in Christianity. This is the promise that Jesus Christ not only gives, but verifies to all those who trust Him alone as their Lord and Savior, that we will be raised from the dead to be with Him for eternity. This morning, this resurrection morning, is what we celebrate, is the absolute verity of that promise. Is that your promise today? Oh, I hope it is. I hope you know Him. I hope you've given your heart to Him. I hope you've asked Him for the forgiveness of sins that His blood provides and that you've been born again and made one of His own. If so, this hope of resurrection is as absolutely yours as it was the historical fact on the day when He came out of the tomb. That's the glory of the resurrection and that's why we come and celebrate today. What a glorious God we serve. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Oh, you can say it better than that. He is risen. That sounds better. Amen. You have the words for crown him with many crowns in your hymnal or in your, not in your hymnal, in your bulletin. Go ahead and stand up, please. We're going to sing this together. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee and King through all eternity. Crown him the Lord of love, behold his hands and side. Rich wounds that visible above, his beauty glorified. No angel in the sky Holy bear that sight, and downward bends his wandering eye at mystery so bright. Crown him the Lord of life, who triumphed o'er the grave, who rose victorious to the strife for those he came. 
Father, how we thank You this morning that we can join in this celebration now to crown Him with these many crowns. He is the Lamb sacrificed for our sin, but now upon His throne. And how the heavenly anthem ought to drown all music, but that which sings His praise. He is the Lord of love. His hands and His side where those wounds are still visible, even though healed in the resurrection. No angel in the sky can look at that without veiled eyes because it's so amazing. And that He's the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in all of this for all those who put their trust in Him It's His glories that we sing, this One who died and rose on high, who died to bring us eternal life, and so that death itself may die. And we crown Him the Lord of Heaven, the One who is with You, Father, the One who, through the Spirit, was given to us, who's now ascended to His glorious throne. Oh, to Him we give endless praise, for for He has died for us. And may we learn to begin now the holy joy of adoring and glorifying this One who has died for us. Lord, bless these things to us this morning. Let the hearts of Your people be refreshed and excited about the glory yet to come in this day of resurrection that we will enjoy all believers in Him because Christ has been raised from the dead. It is true. It's real. And it is the sum of life. Bless your people as they go from this place today. And may they all go carrying the good news of this great resurrection to those around them. We offer up our thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.